Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. The Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has recently warned of a loneliness epidemic in the United States and has cited research suggesting that loneliness can be as toxic to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Unfortunately, societal trends do not support people getting together in real life. Attendance at virtually all community gatherings is on the decline, whether we are referring to social groups, religious organizations, or even picnics. Sadly, our 35,000-year-old brains are not wired for the isolation we are experiencing these days. Our social brains crave community and togetherness, and even the most introverted of us need some communal connection, but we rarely know how to do it or where to even look. And that's why I'm so happy to speak with Charles Vogel. Charles has spent time in diverse communities, such as the Peace Corps in Zambia, Yale University, where he did his master's degree in spiritual traditions, philosophy, and business, and here in Silicon Valley, where he has served at Google's Vitality Lab. He is the author of several books, including one I listened to and loved called The Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging. Charles speaks about the principles that help communities thrive and why we need them. I agree with best-selling author Richard Leiter, who said of the book, at last, here is an insightful guide to create the community you have envisioned for yourself and others. Amen, brother. So listen in as Charles and I talk about the art of community. Charles Vogel, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Right on. I loved your book, The Art of Community and the seven principles that you endorse. I stand by them. I was smiling the entire time. I gave it a listen on Audible. So listeners, listen up, download this. This is a really important book that can have a dramatic change in your life. And it's such a privilege to get to geek out with you on this really important and timely topic about cultivating community. Let's just go to the origin story because so much fun to go back in time. Let's hear about you and how this came to be such an important topic personally in your life. Okay. Well, the quick story is in my early adulthood, I did many things that in retrospect, we could call activism. I was a US Peace Corps a volunteer in Southern Africa and worked on human rights issues there and health issues there. And then for some time, I was a full-time volunteer in a radical homeless ministry in Southern California. And then while in New York, I made a film that went on to become a PBS film about a family surviving the Cambodian genocide becoming American. And I did other things, but at least those three things. And the through line of all that was I really failed at being effective until mentors taught me that what I was doing was trying to use a Superman strategy of trying to work really hard and learn everything and be brilliant. And maybe I was, but even if I was, and that's an F, I was burning myself out. 
And they helped me understand that for the success that I really wanted to have, making a difference, I need to get good at inviting people to join me with the shared values and purposes that we had in working together to do something. And in fact, when I started practicing that, that's when my work started getting, in retrospect, international attention. Subsequent to that, I went to graduate school to study religion, philosophy, and ethics. And when I got there, part of what I was studying was communities, spiritual communities that have stayed together for well over a thousand years and in many, many different ways in many different places. And I remember being struck that I was reading about communities that are a thousand years old and I could get on a plane at that moment and go find their descendants still together in India or in Northern Europe, still gathering around those values. So then at some point in my life, Adam, I was a man in his early 40s. I was living in Northern California because I followed my wife out here because she has a career in tech. And I was an adult with a degree in religion and didn't know how to contribute to our economy in a way that was authentic to me. And I was having lunch one day with a guy named Kevin. And Kevin had relatively recently founded a company called Twitch, which was an online platform for gamers to connect through video. And at the time, Twitch had 50, 50 million users. And Kevin said to me that what he really wanted to do better was connect the people that were coming on the platform because he knew that the platform was going to grow just because there were so many gamers. Turns out Kevin is right. They now have a quarter billion users. And I remember sitting at the table and when he said that, he didn't say that to me because he wanted me to solve the problem. He was just sharing about challenges he was facing running a global tech company. And there were all these things I want to share with him. Because I realized in that moment that I had just spent years of my life practicing tools to bring people together on shared values and purpose to take on challenges. And then I'd been studying people who've been doing that for well over a thousand years. So I went home to write down what I thought was going to be a 10-page white paper and then put it on the internet and share it with my friend Kevin. He can use it for his company and whatevs. Turns out I had more to say. (laughs) And when I was done, it was book length. And it turns out the first publisher that saw it wanted to publish it. And now we're talking. That is absolutely phenomenal. And one of the things I love is, I believe it's a definition that you dropped. And that is, a community is a group of people who share mutual concern for one another. Is that on point? Yeah, that's the working definition I use in my work. And the reason is I've noticed that in this era where there's so much marketing that's trying to promote what they call community, the word doesn't have a lot of meaning to most people. And quite frankly, I've noticed that a lot of people use the word community to describe a list. List of people on email. List of people who showed up to an event. List of people who purchased something. Hey, nothing wrong with lists. But that's not community. For sure. So I keep it very simple. It's a group of people who share mutual concern. If you don't know the names of people in that list, besides you, if they don't care whether you got sick this week, then you're probably not in a community. And it's also very simple to when I'm teaching people in leadership, it's like, this is what we're trying to create. And I don't care how many people showed up to your pizza party. I don't care. If what we're trying to build is a community, the question is, did the people show up to your pizza party experience something that's helping them create the relationships they seek? where there's mutual concern between them. I love that. And I also really appreciated the fact that you've even described a book club that could be a book club and they really get together for the book, but they may not share mutual concern. And if they don't, that's not a community. It's a bunch of people engaging in some kind of intellectual discussions, but not necessarily a legitimate community in that way. And I love that you differentiate from an email list that we use for utilitarian purposes Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, that's not a community either. And then I suddenly think about somebody in college, I remember hearing her say in the hallway, yeah, I had 100 of my closest friends at my birthday party. And I found myself thinking, 
yeah, 100 of your closest friends, do you have the RAM space for that many people? And now I have a better way of thinking of it to actually engage in mutual concern. So let's go to the 3 a.m. friend, Mm -hmm. which is one of your criteria for friendship. And I love it. Let's talk about what is a 3 a.m. friend as you see it. So a 3 a.m. friend just refers to a certain kind of friend. In my work, that's the person that A, we can call when we have an emergency at 3 a.m. friend and we know they want the call. And then the other direction, they're the people in our lives where if they have an emergency at 3 a.m. that we can help with and they don't call us, that's a problem for us because it keeps us from being the friend we want to be. And I like sharing that idea because when we, Adam, are doing things in the world where we want to connect people and make them feel less lonely, more supported, more resilient in their lives, what we're trying to do is not make sure they have a lot of good pizza experiences. (laughs) We want them to have people to call when they have a burst pipe in January in in Salt Lake City and need a place to go to. For sure. You and I are in some ways brothers from other mothers in that... I gave a TEDx talk on friendship and adulthood because I saw it as an epidemic issue. I work with really cool people, many of whom are actually quite friendable, but due to ethical and legal issues, mm. me being their therapist, I cannot become their friends and say, dude, great sesh. Let's go grab a beer after our session. But I began it with a quote from Oprah Winfrey, at least it's attributable to her. And that is, it's easy to find someone who will ride with you on a limo a lot harder to find someone who will ride on the bus. And the 3 a.m. friend is the one who will ride on the bus with you and sit during the downtimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important descriptor. There's something else that you also dropped at some point, could have been in your book, could have been in a podcast interview that I heard of yours, but a deeper experiencing of each other. I mm-hmm. thought that was profound. A deeper experiencing of each other. and. That just kind of gave me a sense of like, who is Charles? What is he about? What does he care about? And it was something that really resonated with me. I think it resonates with all humans. You and I talked off a line about a group of returning vets who have been through something awful and need affiliation. They need friendship. And when they don't have it, bad things can happen. And in a time when church and religious organization affiliation is going down, community service organizations like Kiwanis Club or Lions Club or whatever is going down. And even you cite picnics, picnics, the number of picnics are going down. Mm -hmm. These become all the more salient. Let's talk a little bit about what you have done to cultivate community on your own because you've done some pretty cool stuff. Do you mean recently or do you mean like in my life? In your life, I believe you've hosted dinners and mm-hmm. things like that to try okay. to get people together right. and talking. Well, the example that I wrote about in the book, so I'm happy to talk about it here because obviously you're familiar with it, is when I was in graduate school, I went to graduate school at Yale. And I remember when I showed up on campus, the fame of the school and the very, very grand buildings on campus were overwhelming. And I was convinced when I showed up that I would never actually belong there. And I was convinced that actually they were going to discover that a mistake had been made and they were going to ask me to leave. And that's how isolated I felt. And I reflected on some of the wisdom from some mentors and some sages I'd read. And my now wife and I started hosting dinners on Friday night in our very small home there on Prospect Street. And remember, we didn't know people. So we were largely inviting strangers over. And the first couple of times we did this, people showed up because it was novel, but then it was no longer novel. And there was an entire campus of fun things with activities and then not very many people came over. So it was a big question, like whether 
scheduling every Friday evening to sit down at our dinner table with hot food we made was a good idea. Maybe we should be out like spending time with other people. But I had the sense that this is what I needed to do. And of course, sitting down at my own table was inexpensive. And it meant I was meeting people in a really undistracted venue. Whereas a lot of things that people at colleges go do are really distracting, like noisy, what have you. And I'll just tell you, Adam, after two years of doing these small dinners in our little home, I realized we had hosted over 500 people one small dinner at a time. God. And the people who would show up would help us clean up whatnot, but it was still exhausting. It took hours each Friday. So then after those two years, we turned to our friends who were the people who were coming regularly and said, Hey, we want to keep doing this, but it's just too much work for us. We need to organize in some way to keep it going. So I remember we had this meeting. And what came out of that is some of those friends agreed to be dinner leaders. So they would take a Friday and make sure that the dinner was made. They would could use our home to host it. And then others would volunteer to support them. So there was a team making that dinner. We only had 14 people maximum. And then Sam handled the wait lists that we were running because more people on campus wanted to sit down for a three to five hour dinner with us than we had room for. And then Arjan handled the sponsorships because it turned out that a number of the undergrads who wanted to share the meal just didn't have the budget to buy groceries for a dinner of 14. And so others would go ahead and pay for that. And we did that for five years officially. And then my wife and I continued with our own tradition. And it, then it just seems math, right? We were having was sitting down for three to five hours every Friday for five years with people who were meeting on campus. And it was life-changing, as you can imagine. And not just only for me, but for the people who came. And then really inspired me at one point is I realized as these undergrads were for the first time in their lives trying to host a dinner party and sometimes failing, that I realized that we weren't just hosting an event that Friday for 14 of us to sit down and chair, that we were training the next generation. And what actually happened over the years is as they left campus, they created something similar with their own language, so to speak, where they moved to. And so I knew that there were gatherings happening around the country. And this was not a profound country-changing program. It was a profound life-changing experience for those of us who participated in it. And I mentioned to you earlier while we were talking, Adam, that you know my life has forever changed. I spent years spending hundreds of hours sitting down with no agenda except to know people at my school. And I'm now meaningfully older now, and we've all aged. And that community I've built means that there is no emergency in my life that I can have where there isn't a world-level expert for me to call who wants to help me with it. That is unbelievable, Charles. Can you imagine how our senses of security, our sense of anxiety, perhaps depression, would be greatly diminished if everyone had that perception of mm -hmm. perceived support, as I'm going to call it, that are people out there. Yeah. And I'm wondering what happened to you individually. You described something roughly akin to an imposter syndrome-like phenomenon where like, oh my God, I don't necessarily belong at Yale when they find out who I am. Over the course of time, through these dinners, what ended up happening to your own sense of your identity relative to being at Yale? Well three things. One is I found out that was the majority experience. And everybody who goes to any program that's really selective will tell you that was their experience or that was their experience. So first of all, that's what I learned. The second one is I learned that we all had come together wanting to find each other to... Camaraderie is where it comes to mind. The tenor is wrong. Simpatico, 
with people with the level of curiosity we had. And just by virtue of being admitted to study at Yale, like we were the people who were willing to do the work, so to speak. It wasn't just about mouth- mouthing off opinions. We were the people who do the reading and or do the pilgrimage. And that was very exciting. Like, oh, I've actually found my people. We're the ones who, well, my particular people are, are the ones who are profoundly curious. And we take this seriously and, and do the learning at sometimes at levels that are like astonishing. And then the third one is over time, remember I was there for quite frankly many years, that I realized that I and we, all of us who thought we didn't belong, we showed up the first week, to the world and to the future of the institution, we are the institution. Yep. So the first week, I'm just the punk that they must have let in accidentally. Yep. Seven years later, I realized as I go out in the world and speak, as I go out into the world and you know create a career, invite people to participate in life, I'm representing this brand whether I want to or not. And so are all these other people around me who think they don't belong there. And the institution, which is an institution, right? Because everybody who's working there now is not going to work there in 50 years because right. they may be dead. And the fact that they're going to be different. And like, the institution needs us to define its place in the world, not to defend the institution, but if it has any validity, it's because those of us who are spending our time there and trying to do something in the world that matters, we're the people that are sharing, yes, this is how you can form if you be here. And people may hate me and I may do a bad job and I could be an arrogant ass, but notice I'm the one who's creating that understanding, which is to say it didn't seem so distant from me anymore. I realized I was part of a pattern and a journey and I could embrace that. And I now stand on stages you know, internationally and surprise, surprise, people find out where I get my credentials. And I realized that for them, like partly what they're hearing is like, oh, people who spend that many years at that place learn these kind of things and contribute in this way. And that's takeaway whether I want them to take it or not. And I can just be with that and not fretting whether I belong there or I'm worthy. Love this. And I'm going to go back to point number one. And that is that over time, you began to realize that you were all in the same boat when it came to feeling like you didn't necessarily belong. Mm -hmm. That requires a modicum of vulnerability. And as I was kind of imagining that, I was thinking about that scene at a similar institution, Cambridge University, that was shown in the movie Chariots of Fire. And Mm -hmm. there was no vulnerability Mm -hmm. in that you had to show up with armor to each Mm -hmm. meal. Mm -hmm. And I love that you speak in your book, In the Art of Community, about vulnerability as a crucial key element for connection. Because without it, that would not have been known. If somebody didn't raise their hand and say, hey, I kind of feel like an outsider here. I'm not sure I really belong. That starts the whole conversation. I think about Michael Addis. He's a professor over at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. He wrote a book called Invisible Men. And he talked about various types of silences. Personal silence, holding something back, not being vulnerable. Public silence. When somebody says, oh, wow, TMI, like what's wrong with you? And it seems that a characteristic in your community where mutual concern is really the currency at hand, vulnerability has a place to express itself. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about vulnerability as you see it. So there's a lot to talk about vulnerability. And just even though you were sharing that you appreciate how I bring up my work, what came to my mind is we have to qualify how we talk about it. Because I've noticed that people who don't do as much research as you and I have, think, oh, vulnerability is good. That must mean I barf out. A great <laughs> no, speaker, yeah, right. I'm glad you know, you're distinguishing quickly those. Because I heard some right? experts that <laughs> vulnerability is having friends. Yeah. And you are right. My understanding is Brene Brown's research has shown that if there isn't vulnerability, you're not going to have that connection. And the prescription is not just barf out your fears and concerns and 
weaknesses people around you. <laughs> Don't carve open your things. heart at the right. dinner table and actually pull it out for everyone right. to see. Which is to say, there's just some experimentation deafness. And I've now learned, especially from uh, you know Dr. Brown at uh, Rice University, that also how vulnerable is read is very culturally specific. And I come from a very specific culture. I'm Asian American. I'm originally from the West Coast. Southern white men relate to vulnerability differently. And it'd be ridiculous for me to host an event or even host a training experience and want them to feel comfortable sharing vulnerability as I do from my cultural background, right? Because there's honor culture. Honor culture is very different. So when you and I, people with education, talk about this stuff, we need to be cognizant. (laughs) There are qualifications to make. I'm glad you made that as well. And in my work, at this point in my career, I'm advising people creating contexts for people to connect in better ways. And Adam, you know, I work with people working with veterans. And veterans, there are many, many different segments of veterans of many, many different ages. Some of the through lines are they may be coming from cultures where rugged individuality is the culture. That's right. And in rugged individuality, you don't share in relationships, look, I really need help and I'm struggling with this. There's this bragging that, look, I can handle it myself and I'm happy to hang out with you. Except we know that not everybody's handling it. And one of the statistics we can look at is self-harm. And then we can look at family problems and divorce and substance abuse, which is to say there's a lot of stuff going on there. And one of the ways that we can support people who don't yet have the skills to make those connections because their culture, this rugged individualism is inhibiting that, is to create spaces where the rules are different. Or in my work, we call that a sacred space. Sacred space just means it's set aside. If we create a certain meal space or ritual space where we say, the only reason you're here is you're a veteran and the only reason you're here is you want to meet other veterans. The only reason you're here to meet other veterans is you understand that we need each other to get through the challenges we're facing in civilian life. And if you're doing great, great. And if you're not doing great, guess what? You're certainly not alone. There are rules here that we have that don't apply to the rest of the world. Like the first one is rank doesn't matter. We don't care if you're retired a colonel or you're retired a private here, that doesn't matter. Another rule is we close the door. If you're not a veteran and you're not and you don't have that experience, then you're not here to watch. Girlfriends, moms, best friends. My point is we create a sacred space. The rules are different. And because the rules are different. The rules are different. And now conversations that can happen happen somewhere else. And that takes a little bit of training and a lot of attention to bring people to a place where they understand, oh, I can act different here. That's amazing. And one of the things that you also talk about is inclusivity versus actually having certain metrics that are met, like you talked about a new mother's group Mm -hmm. in the book that I thought Mm -hmm. was really important. Mm -hmm. And that meant that their husbands were not welcome. That meant that Somebody who gave birth perhaps five years ago was not welcome. It was for new mothers, specifically who mm-hmm. were in, if, if I understood correctly, who were in a peer group who had recently given birth, who might be going through similar things. I wanted to just kind of talk about the open versus closed door mm-hmm. elements to communities mm-hmm. and both the risks and the benefits of mm-hmm. each position, because you're kind of speaking to that a little bit. Right when you were talking about the veterans. Let's just qualify. Then we talk about this. All ideas can be taken to an extremist place where they become toxic. And you and I are not talking about that. Uh Uh-huh, 100%. So when I talk about leadership building community, in this case, people who share mutual concern for one another, one of the things that we notice of durable communities is there's a boundary. So I think your example is a good one, Adam. If you and I notice that there are new mothers in our community that really would like support from one another, 
then we can invite them to come to a space together. But guess what? They don't want Adam and Charles sitting there listening to all their problems. <laughs> Definitely not. Right. Now, maybe you have certain credentials where you qualify the boundary. And when we create community, we get to choose, well, what are the credentials? What is yeah. the filter? And then to hold the boundary, we need elders who, who hold the boundary. And it isn't like, oh, gee, some guy who just wants to meet new moms because he thinks they're cute, wants to sit in on it, and he's really nice, and he has a mom. Like, no, 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 out. And if you don't have an elder who can hold the boundary, then you don't really have a boundary. And when we talk about a boundary, it doesn't, we're not saying that only when new moms show up, we are nice to them and we're not nice to everybody else. We're just acknowledging if new moms are handling the stress, the financial concerns, and the medical challenges of new moms, and they want to talk about that in a place where people will judge them who have no empathy on being a new mom with those medical problems. Okay, then we close the damn door. And yeah. Charles and Adam aren't in the room. And that's okay. And I've noticed that there is a well-meaning intention to say everybody can show up to everything all the time. Right. And I understand why. But if veterans who are turning to alcohol to assuage the pain and new moms in our community who are under stress from the financial concerns of their medical challenges, who want to cry about that, if they want a safe place to do that, Adam and Charles can't be touring the room like offering cucumber sandwiches while it's going on. Now, when that experience is done, do we want the new mom group to be friendly, connected with, have experiences with people who are not new moms? Absolutely. That's why it's not an extremist idea. But we, in leadership, need to give ourselves permission to close the damn door and understand the door stays shut when it needs to stay shut. Because, in part, this is what creates the space safe enough for the possible vulnerable conversations that need to happen for that connection to happen. So let's talk about that. I'm guessing that the door was a little bit more widely open when you were on Prospect in New Haven. And yet it probably... I'm guessing a criterion was you have to be fellow student. No, sure. that was not the criteria whatsoever. Okay, and in fact, to hear. And in fact, what happened in those particular years was people would bring their best friends visiting and would bring their neighbors and would bring parents. In fact, what developed, which we did not plan, <laughs> was as volunteers would sign up for a, a week to lead the dinner make the menu, make sure they had enough help to do it. They would plan months in advance because that's just how planning works. And on a number of occasions, people flew in their mothers oh. to help them make traditional dishes from their family. Oh my God, how great. Oh my God is right. So much honor to be in a room mm. of 14 people who have agreed to sit together from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock and maybe stay later, but they're going to sit down at 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock and they're going to enjoy a multi-course meal made with their friend's mom because they wanted to share that family tradition with us. I have goosebumps just remembering. Me too. That is so awesome. It was so awesome. And it was all a gift. One of the rules was we don't ask for money. We don't accept money. And partly because we knew this was a community that didn't have the money. And many, many people were living in debt every day. Deep school student debt. last thing they needed was another experience to charge them for something. I'm aware that Costco spaghetti doesn't cost very much. <laughs> and if I can't afford to feed somebody Costco spaghetti, then the problem is me and not them. Now, we didn't serve Costco spaghetti because I could afford more than that. But the point is, the budget was not the problem, right? People just want to sit down and Costco spaghetti is good enough. So first of all, that was not a rule. And second of all, the filtering really was about making clear what we were doing. And if and when somebody showed up with the wrong reasons, i.e. let's pretend they were only there to get leads for their real estate business. Oh my God. Then it was my house and it was my roles. And you leave now if you, if you keep talking about real estate and don't ever come back because we're here to make friends. Did, not... you actually, did that actually happen? Something no, like it that? didn't. Did you ever have the discomfort of having to excuse someone from the group? I never asked someone to leave, but there were people who clearly didn't 
Nothing's coming up to mind, but there were people that clearly weren't used to sitting at a table for several hours and just having a dinner party. And one of the ways that show up is they would treat us like they were pit stop on their social tour on Friday night. And I had explained to a number of them over the years, people cooked for hours for this meal. There's only 14 seats. When you show up for only 90 minutes and tell us how many events you have to go to because you're so busy and popular and leave, like that's not honoring the cook. You're not just meant to fit this in. Right. If you're going to show up, show right. up. Yeah. And like that as a criterion. So, I mean, in general, one of the things that you talk about in the book is explicit criteria. Like if you yeah. want to be in this group, right. these are the things that are, you know, expected. And yeah. these are the, some of the things that are allowed and these are some of the things that aren't. And I think that's a really important informed consent. And I'm wondering how do you recommend for a community who wants to make sure that informed consent is actually at hand? What are some of your guidelines for that to ensure better membership? Yeah, so in my work, I teach quite a bit about invitations because that's where community starts, at least in the material world. Someone has to be invited. And if, by the way, if you're not inviting anybody, stop complaining, people don't show up. <laughs> and in my work is an invitation is a request to spend time where someone knows, someone cares if they show up. And if nobody knows that anybody cares, then that's called an announcement. I define that and I notice a lot of organizations recognize they've invited nobody to anything ever. They're too busy announcing stuff and then wringing their hands that people aren't getting involved. Like, Adam, you don't want to come to my Thanksgiving my house if I send out an announcement. You're like, I got another Thanksgiving to go to, right? But if I call you and say, wow, I really appreciate your conversation. I appreciate how committed you are to mental health. I appreciate your efforts to get good ideas in the world that'll heal people. Please spend four hours at my dinner table on Thanksgiving. I'd, I'd love to spend that time with you. Boom, totally different thing. 100%. So first of all, we start with the invitation. And in the invitation, if there are rules, like Adam, if you come to Thanksgiving, show up at four, plan to stay at eight, and if you leave at 4 or 55 because you want to tell me about this other Thanksgiving that your chef friend is hosting, like don't come. Because <laughs> we're going to have a seat for you and I'm going to cook for three hours and I don't need an empty seat for the last three hours of Thanksgiving because you're so popular. And I've noticed that, unfortunately, Americans aren't invited to a lot of intimate experiences now. And so they may not understand that I need to show up on time. Like if Charles cooks for four hours and he plans to serve a hot meal at 7, don't show up at 7.45. And say, wow, this was really great 45 minutes ago. So be explicit you want. And then you need to choose how explicit and demanding you want to be depending on who you're inviting, right? People you're inviting don't know when they're going to get off work. If they don't know if they're going to get childcare, if they don't know if they're going to have reliable transportation, then you better be flexible if you want them to come. But you and I, Adam, we both know people who are so into food that if we say, Adam, my wife and her friends are making Cambodian meal on Saturday. We're serving at six. If you come, you can bring one friend. You need to show up no later than 5.55. You need to make sure that you stay until nine o'clock. And I want you to bring one bottle of wine and I want you to wear pants. And by the way, when you're here, this is what I do in my house, just know that we're going to put the phones away in another room. And the reason Dude, is... That was one of my questions. Right. You got it. And the reason is, is Adam, if you're going to have this meal, <laughs> my wife's going to cook for six hours with her friends, then we're going to sit together and appreciate that. And we're going to learn about Cambodian history. And we're going to learn about Cambodian color history. And if you don't want to do that, don't come. And we know a lot of people will be like, no hell. And other people will be like, I will fly across the country for that dinner. I, I would fall into the latter category. Right, right. Tell me what it is. It's on my calendar, right? Real Cambodian Americans are going to teach you a Cambodian culinary history over five hours. And we have to put our phones away. It's limited seating. I'm flying in. <laughs> and my point is, we can set us all the rules we want as long as we know who we're inviting. And if I don't want someone to come who won't sit and learn about Cambodian culinary history for three hours or whatever we're doing, then good, say no. 
Well, Charles, I'm going to presume that this invitation was real and I will be there at 5.50 right. at your house. Adam, I know that you live within an hour and a half of my home. I promise on this recording to invite you to my home for Asian food. Holy shit. I will not volunteer my wife to make you a Cambodian meal because I want to stay married. <laughs> I, however, am pretty good with chopsticks and I know how to dice ginger. So we'll probably be fine. Dude, and I will show up on time. The phone is going into the other room. And having spent three years in Japan, I'm really good with chopsticks. Yeah. Well, let me share, Adam, in all seriousness, when you come to my home for dinner, not you, but everybody, we have a, a device. We don't overthink it. It's called the phone basket. And there's a ritual we have. Remember I said about making the space special. We stand in my living room, which is to say before we sit at the table, and my wife and I are the first to put our phones in the phone basket. And we invite everybody in the room to do so. And if people are on call, we have protocols so they can participate. And then I ritually walk the phones into another room. Love it. A little note for your humor is we used to lock them up in a lockbox, a timed lockbox. And then we had one person who had to leave early and she couldn't because her phone was locked up on a timed lockbox. So we don't do that anymore. But nonetheless, everybody has agreed to be at the table with the people at the table and not focus on the people not at the table. And let me tell you, Adam, it changes everything. A million percent. And one of my earlier podcast episode was with a CEO of a company called Yonder. His name is Graham Dagoni. My wife, children, and I went to see John Mulaney perform live. And one of the things you had to do was SAP Center was give the phone mm -hmm. to the people at SAP and they would lock it up with this Yonder service. And the quality of the show was so much better without these mm -hmm. damn phones going with people filming. I remember hearing Beyonce once on stage saying something like, hey, you don't need to film me. I'm right here. You know? It's just yeah. like, and all the more so, like if we're going to have dinner together and have a sacred space, don't be on the phone. It's, mm -hmm. it's just so disrespectful. Simon Sinek talks about the phone basket as well. And that's what he does with his friends. I think it's a great ritual. And that really trippy because it's almost like you intuit my next question because the next question was actually about one of those principles and that is ritual. Mm -hmm. which to me is such a big deal. And that will probably be my last big theme before I get to my miracle question with you. But let's talk about ritual as it relates to community. I was so... I mean, seriously, it was green lights the entire book. Mm. All I mean, from the second I heard your... I mean, your narrator's voice until the end, it was green lights. This mm -hmm. book is so important. Let's talk about ritual. So... Before I specifically talk ritual, let me speak to your point about green lights. Adam, I think of my work as sharing ideas that are very, very, very old. And I think that's one reason why when you read it, you said it's all green lights, because like these are not new ideas. <laughs> and I know if I talk to any Jewish rabbi and I try to pretend the work that I'm teaching is new and based on contemporary research, they're just going to roll their eyes. And like, do you know how long people have been doing that? As well, they should, because I don't pretend it's, it's new. Now, what makes it my work is I've done the work to distill these ideas and translate them so they're accessible to contemporary leadership that hasn't done the research that you and I have done. And that was real work. But the ideas are very, very old. And so that's true about ritual, that when we look at communities that have stayed together for over a thousand years, by the way, Jews count, Adam, <laughs> they're full of ritual. And one of the things that rituals do is they mark our maturation through life or said differently, how we are changing. And they, the rituals speak to us that we notice we're changing. And then as much as we invite people to those rituals, it shares with others that we're changing and they can acknowledge that we're changing. And we live in a time 
where I've noticed Americans have largely lost many rituals. And famously, because we've lost them, a lot of Americans, when they turn 21, just go drinking because what else you got? Right? What That's else is rich. marking That's that it. you're getting older, right? So when we put rituals in our communities, sport, faith, work, neighborhood, when we start putting rituals, it gives us reasons to come together and it helps us all acknowledge how we're changing. So just one example that was not my example, it was shared with me by an army chaplain and it deeply moved me. And he said that when war fighters come back from war, they don't have a lot of decompression time. In World War II, they often had months to get to transport and then days on the ship. And then they had to get from wherever they landed in the United States to home. And that's no longer the case. They're on a jet plane and they're, they, they step off. And he said how he noticed there was a particular need with some warfighters. And he took them to a pond on the base there in Florida where they ritually washed off the dirt of war from their uniforms, their fatigues, before they went home. And he shared how powerful it was. And I remember, first of all, being blown away by the power of the thought of the chaplain ritually washing the dirt of war off of clothes with soldiers. But then also upset, that was unfortunately a rare and special example. And I would want everybody who comes from an experience often traumatic and life-changing to have a moment where someone acknowledges you have been changed and as much as you're coming home, you're changing again from being that war fodder to being that father and that spouse and that son and that daughter. Then you're no longer a war fighter because we've washed the war off your clothes. And I can see you're tearing up just as you're even articulating this. This yeah. is really, this is very moving to me too. There's something really profound about the human thirst, existential need for meaning. And one of those mm-hmm. best routes to meaning in my human and clinical experience mm-hmm. is through ritual. There's a great book called Betwixt and Between, not very well known, that ritualizes all kinds of mm-hmm. common phenomena. and One of the things that it talks about, just as you did, is that here in the modern U.S., we are bereft of rituals. We Mm -hmm. have these so-called rites of passage where we turn 18, we're considered people who can vote. At 21, we can drink. Maybe if we're fortunate enough to be Catholic or Jewish, we might have a rite of passage that is age-related in quinceanera if we are from Mm -hmm. Latin culture. But there are very few and how badly we as humans need it. And I'm even thinking of just as ordinary as a birthday party, oftentimes we don't speak about the celebrant at the birthday party. We're just kind of gathering without taking a moment to say, hey, miraculous, you were born. So glad you're here. Mm -hmm. I appreciate these things about you. Or something akin to acknowledging the person being celebrated in a meaningful manner. Uh, I love that you talked about birthday parties as rituals and how rituals may, without context, may seem a little bit odd, but within the context are entirely appropriate. And the idea of going from the horrors of war and within just a few hours being flown back in Mm -hmm. this artificial room called an airplane Mm -hmm. and being let off without the ritual of washing yourself from that previous place. Wow. I mean, how brilliant it is that Mm -hmm. somebody identified and executed on that Mm -hmm. ritual. Well, that's an involved example that I admire involving a pond and, and mud. I'll tell you, in my house, if you come to dinner, whatever we have for dinner, for dessert, I don't care what it is, no matter how humble it is, I have candles and I put a candle in it. And the guests who are there are people I know. And I'll know that people have experienced something new or they're in a transition. And I'll put a candle. And if you've never been there before, 
my home before. It's kind of weird, right? Somebody's birthday, right? Mm. And then I'll share that we take a moment for dessert just to acknowledge how we're changing. And I'll mention how somebody's life is in the middle of transition or they've accomplished something. And then I invite them to share what it is they hope to accomplish now that they've reached this place in their lives. And then one of those guests, the person I chose to honor with this ritual was the middle school daughter of some friends who came for dinner. And I knew that she had just performed a recital. That was a big deal for her. She'd never played for that many people before. She'd obviously never played that music before. And I was able to acknowledge that you had this recital and this is a new level of performance for you. You share. Well, Adam, how many adults in her life do you think take a moment and specifically call out that she has put years of work and achieved a new level of performance as a 12-year-old? Exactly. And unfortunately, I think I'm about 100%. But for her, that's years of practice and a whole new tier of artistic accomplishment. How about somebody takes a damn minute and says, I see you. I acknowledge that. And I want to hear what you have to say now that you've earned this. And the I see you part is such a big deal. And that's just Mm -hmm. one of the other big thirsts in life is to be seen, really seen. Wow. And what we will do, run these fool's errands to be seen on TikTok Mm -hmm. and other places where we're not really seen. And it's not really us. It's mm-hmm. just a persona. Well, I'm going to go into one of my rituals, and that is my final question. And it's a magical question in nature. And that is simply this. Charles, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity one skill or insight that would improve the lives of the individuals living and perhaps all stakeholders, perhaps even the communities in which they are situated, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you uh, imagine it would impact So what's coming up for me, Adam, is I wish we could all fulfill the generosity we already have for one another. I believe I am surrounded by people every day, everywhere I go, who want to be a help, a support, and a resource. And they don't know how, and they don't know if they're going to be allowed, and they don't know how to extend themselves without creating a problem. And if we all had the powers, the insight, the skills to do that, everything would be different. Beautiful, Charles. And so on point for who I'm getting to know who you are as a person. Generosity, what a beautiful wish. It's been so great geeking out with you. So great learning with you, learning from you, and looking forward to seeing what comes. Well, I'm glad to be invited, Adam. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 